I am absolutely thrilled to have Ryan here. I'm going to let Ryan introduce himself, but thank you so much for being here. Whether it is a good morning, a good afternoon, or a good evening, you know everything. And this is the Relatable Series with Nicole BC. Today, we are talking to a friend I met on the internet. (laughs) Ryan and I were kind of poking around in a shared Discord community. He has a Discord community. I've recently started a Discord community. So he's been a huge influence in terms of me actually just stepping out my participation in Discord, in Web3, in podcasting. And he recently, well, it's not so recent anymore, is it? But you launched a project called 400 Drums, and we're going to talk a lot about that today, but there's so many reasons that I wanted to get you onto this podcast because I think that a lot of the people listening can not only relate to your story, but also your purpose. And you're a very mission-led philanthropist, professional, creator, community member, human. <laughs> and it seems like everything that you do is kind of driven by this question of how can I make this world a better place or this experience better for even just one person? And that's so inspiring, but also like, I love that you can do that like in business. I'm using air quotes for anybody just listening. And you've demonstrated that it can be done in the NFT world and the web three world and by bridging communities that probably felt pretty disparate in terms of how tech could be of benefit to them. So Ryan, I always kind of start these episodes out with origin story and I kind of let, you know, it's user's choice. You can tell us how you think you got to this particular conversation, or you can share a larger part of your journey, how you got here in this moment. Cool. Yeah. That's a good way to start. It's actually Rian, by the way. It's a a weird name, like Ian with R in front. So don't there worry. we go. See, Every, internet friends. That's what yeah, happens exactly. internet when friends. you just meet on the internet. <laughs> call you reincarnation, but yeah. perhaps that would have been the better. <laughs> My podcast. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. So it's been kind of interesting like to, to become someone who's working with an NFT Web3 project in any capacity. You have to have a certain kind of purview on, I guess, what these things can be either just for economically flipping, doing a, an easy project that you hope will sell out to make money or actually figuring out how to use the technology, like you said, for some kind of positive benefit. So yeah, a few years ago, I think probably around when we first met, I was making a decentralized nonprofit was kind of the idea that eventually I wanted to integrate with Web3, but I am not a developer. So it was just kind of, I was working on the ideation of this community volunteerism app where instead of having to volunteer at like a YMCA or somewhere to be able to give back in some capacity to your community or elderly people or whatever, that you could have an app where you can see what help might be needed in your neighborhood, in your area, because since kind of modern social media, modern technology, there's, and COVID, obviously, there's been a large degree of social isolation. Like, for example, I've lived in this apartment complex that I'm in for like three and a half years almost. I haven't, I don't know the name of a single other person who who lives in this community. That's partly because of social media and just life in a city can be so disconnecting in a lot of ways. So I thought to be able to put your community where everybody's attention kind of is so that you could just, oh, there are people in my building or in my community who just need help unloading groceries or doing some gardening because they have arthritis or or whatever that particular thing might be. That's something that really should be here if we're using technology to hopefully for the betterment of of humanity. This seems like a low-hanging fruit started working on this project. And in doing that, we were doing it all on kind of no funding, all on volunteerism, just as this idea that we wanted to see off 
get off the ground. I got in contact with Tamara, who I hope that you have a conversation with at some point, and David, who are the owners of For Our Future Indigenous Economics, the company that I work for. And so I got in contact with them and I was trying to essentially find funding for Here to Help Community, the volunteerism app, but also because to build out a project this project in a way that could be useful for indigenous communities, I thought was just a really great use of a technology. There's so many communities that could use this or apartment buildings that could use this, whatever. Let's add an indigenous flair. In talking to them, I ended up joining their team. And some of the first work that we engaged in or that I engaged in on the team was we did a, or I did a 79 page research paper around blockchain for procurement, supply chain, and data sovereignty for indigenous businesses, communities, people, and the ways that can intersect with a whole bunch of things that obviously there's a lot of ways that Web3 can be useful. So in doing that research, Tamara kind of looked at me and said, we're going to do all this research, but no one's going to be able to, to take it and actually make the thing, especially when you're doing like RFP procurement contracts. We're doing a feasibility plan for a technology. It's not our technology. It's something that there is a federal contract that many different maybe levels of government and different corporations would have pieces of. And it means that it goes through layers of bureaucracy and nothing ends up happening. So she said, we're essentially going to have to do our, this ourselves if we want to prove or prove the concept. So we created 400 drums, not exactly as that research because we didn't go too much into the NFT direction with that original paper, but it was us stepping into that and related research, but putting art, arts and culture at the forefront of what we were trying to do to embed Web3 with tradition, with culture, rather than a lot of what we see as the mainstream view of cartoony PFPs that may or may not have any kind of social impact or whatever, but they're mostly thinly veiled marketing ploys with some royalty payouts. So we thought it was a way that we can actually get indigenous people early in this technology to prevent or not necessarily prevent, but to try our best to avoid another kind of technological colonization, be able to make something that's kind of purely the weaving of culture and generations. That is so incredible. And I have like a thousand million questions. <laughs> Would you mind doing your best to kind of put this research paper into terms that someone who might not be familiar with even supply chain management, let alone blockchain, so they can understand? Because that's something you and I are absolutely connecting over offline or I suppose online, but outside of this conversation, <laughs> where I think smart contracts can provide so many use case scenarios for businesses and solve yeah. so many business challenges right now, especially when you're talking about contract procurement, supply chain management, interoperability between departments and or businesses, so on and so forth. But for someone who's like, how the heck could blockchain or you know supply chain help me? Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So without going like incredibly detailed in the paper, because it was a like a federal contract. Am I allowed um, to read that paper? <laughs> I think there's probably aspects that we can take out or like okay. the presentations or something. The nerd in um, me is like, yes. Yeah, like I, Tamara and I need to go through and pull out chunks out that we can pull out that that are not directly related to like the business case, for example. But essentially that that to me is just like what you said, the importance really of Web3. Originally, I was just like, oh, crypto is cool. We could do something environmental with it, but not really knowing besides the decentralization piece, the potential to stop different kinds of monopolization 
and allow different levels of liquid democracy or at least governance participation. I was just, I knew that there was a direction coming. So I've been in investing and reading about crypto since like 2016, 2017. And that first when NFTs came out because of the way that the mainstream kind of shows them at first, like, like cool, it's art on the blockchain, but then understanding actually smart contracts and the possibilities are there. Then it really kind of cracked my skull open that NFTs are not at all about the PFPs. Like that's the way that I describe it is it's as the internet was becoming more popular, you have the early days of more internet exploration, internet sites, the beginning of YouTube. So at the beginning of YouTube, there was still e-bombs worlds and just like crappy things that were funny. They had some value. There's a little animation and something scares you really quickly or whatever, <laughs> like cool. They made a flash animation. To me, that seems like where we're at with NFTs. Like there's a technology, something is going to be used by this. YouTube starts off with a video of somebody like feeding a giraffe at a zoo. But now it is a platform that allows information sharing, teaching of things, remuneration for content creators, all these things. NFTs have to go through that similar maturation process, going from tech bros with a little bit of digital art skills into, just like you said, business case needs and what we were trying to do with our project that we did the research on. So the way that we were looking at something like smart contracts is, for example, like with this project, indigenous people in Canada are owed 5% of all procurement in Canada. They're, I believe, over 5% of the population, like 5 to 11%. So as a minimum number, Indigenous people have to have 5% procurement mandated by the government. But that mandate at a governmental level doesn't necessarily go into the people who are doing the projects themselves. It's a mandate, but there's not necessarily a clear path to get to a 5% number, nor is that really trackable in a large sense, both from definition of indigenous businesses, like all these different layers of yeah. complexity. So we were trying to understand how to leverage new technologies to create a platform that could support the understanding of going towards that number and all the potentials that exist around that. And that's what I can't go too deep within, but with our work with 400 drums and looking at similar research, one of the directions that we are wanting to go and we're, we're starting to do a little bit of work and create some partnerships around is stuff around like business ID and personal ID that, that that are kind of known that's a direction that cryptocurrency can go, but how to do this in beneficial ways for indigenous business in general and individuals. And it's really important in the indigenous side of things to do that correctly because of in Canada, the governance of indigenous people with the Indian Act and the Indian white paper and all this stuff, which are kind of colonial relics on how this archaic system still governs everything to do with indigenous people, how it's owned by, I, th I think like indigenous people are under the care still of like national defense because of how strong politically they actually are, ownership of land in Canada, all these things. So it's a way to start to step towards new kinds of sovereignty if it can be done right. And a good example of what would be one thing that I personally would love to start facilitating, and I think we'll be able to at some point through our work, is there's things like you, you hear about like land back DAO and all these things, but things like tribal relationships with the government, with treaties, are it's a code that often isn't followed by those in power. So to be able to utilize smart contracts, not as like already NFTs to flip and make five ETH, but as ways in which businesses have to deal with businesses or businesses have to deal with nations like indigenous nations, it would force the use of the treaties 
in the way that the government or other entities would interact and be able to support the needs of the treaty, whether it be kind of payment of X that they are owed from the treaty before work begins or something like that, or so many other ways in which like tribal law or the treaties aren't upheld right now. And it would have to from the architecture of smart contracts. So for me, NFTs will take cartoons to get to the masses, but in the end, it is smart contracts and the technology that is going to see this become general business use cases. And it won't feel like you're dealing with NFTs in crypto. It's just another layer that's embedded on internet searches. <laughs> I firstly couldn't agree with you more. Secondly, the brilliance behind this is unparalleled. Third, this is how we start to create the world that we want to live in. And it's using the existing technology. I Like, again, when I, I keep pitching this to businesses and they're like, but how does this change the user experience or how does this change the end result? And it's like, it doesn't. Yeah. You're already doing this. This is just super extra, mega secure, and as transparent as you want it to be. And yes. that's where you know people say, well, why should I do Web3? And it's like, I don't know, but I have like... If you have some problems with security, trust, which I can't even begin to touch on in terms of First Nation and Indigenous people, the idea that a, a contract, which is a same thing as a smart contract, would be completely transparent, but also like automated and executed. So once it's initiated, you know it's going to happen. You can watch it, like you can watch essentially every step along the way happen in real time. And there's no more guessing. And I, and I, you know, when I talk about this in terms of the benevolence or partnerships available for like just your local small business, you know, so many times someone is their sort of unique proposition is, well, we're giving 10% or we're buying a pair of shoes or we plant a tree. And it's like, but how do we know that's happening? And in an increasingly less trusting, skeptical, <laughs> dubious population to be able to say, well, like, you can see it on the blockchain yeah. and you can see this partnership happening in real time. You can see the transaction if it, if it does rely on currencies, which currencies are being exchanged, how much, to whom, at what time. Like, It's this completely new way of sharing information with not just the people in charge, but everybody who's participating. And like, I had full body goosebumps when you were talking about the benefits of this and Supply chain is such an obvious, when I talk to bigger businesses about what are some of your unique challenges, just getting, you know, when you think about these global businesses, I can't even imagine procurement on a national level that's supposed to be benefiting a percentage of income to a percentage of population and how that's being distributed or even held. The logistics seem crazy, but then we have the technology. And so it is just about finding somebody that can build out these enterprise level solutions. And I was talking with a connection that I am incredibly grateful for Joseph over at city roots. And he was saying, you know, if at an enterprise level, you're not exploring blockchain as a solution, like you're fucked basically, Absolutely. like you're dumb, <laughs> you're, you are no longer relevant. And so that's where I think someone like yourself who's creating this access for, again, for populations and communities that probably never thought they'd be able to utilize something like an NFT to benefit the greater whole is quite literally revolutionary. Could you talk to us a little bit about how you went from supply chain management to 400 drums? Yeah. So I, I, I love everything about what you said. And I think 
exactly what you're saying is the reason that we went and switched into the direction that we did. Because for us, and I think what we're trying to prove as a concept for indigenous people, for people in general with right. blockchain, kind of as an example, not to carbon copy us, but it's the idea that what you're already doing is web threeable. That's exactly. probably the wrong term. It's yeah. not about recreating something in this new thing. It's add the layer of what you're already doing to what you're doing. Every single industry, every profession, every cell phone business, every hobby can somehow add a Web3 element to it. And it doesn't have to be about crazy amounts of self-funding. It doesn't have to be all these things. It's almost like when you think about like what a human is and we digest and have these all these things in the, the inside where these isolated bubbles, we're almost like turning ourselves inside out like my, mycelium, being able to share all these things, being open to things on the outside, but just the layers of what opens up in terms of connectivity, in terms of owning your data to connect in new ways through essentially constellations of businesses rather than these individualized areas, I think is so fascinating. So for 400 Drums, For Our Future has been doing, like like Tamara developed this indigenous economic lens over 20 or 25 years of her work in indigenous economics. That's like working with nations to develop what this looks like, all this stuff. And so, and then David on the team, the drum maker has been a drum maker for 24 or 25 years, cultural keeper of the Okanagan nation, West Bank in BC. And it wasn't, how do we now create a cartoony representation of indigenous culture to make money to fund us? It was... David makes drums. If you're an indigenous artist or a sacred artist, ceremonial artist who makes cultural regalia, cultural like ceremonial drums, many cultures like elders would look down on you for profiting off of that. Like you don't make regalia with the purpose necessarily of making a ton of money. You make it for ceremony. You exchange it. It's gifted. If you're, if you are selling it, you're usually selling it for cost of the material. You're not adding like this crazy cost per hour on top as an artist. So many of these artists aren't able to live in, in, in the way that they should be able to with their beautiful crafts that they do, especially when you're thinking of indigenous culture that come from a time where you didn't need to like work somewhere to be able to live. You, you live with the land. So this inception of Western mentalities make it so that maybe you have to join an extraction industry on your territory. Maybe you have to leave your territory just to be able to continue to do the cultural craft. So so David, like I said, has been a drum maker and we have people kind of in, in relation to David and Tamara and people on our team who, who make regalia and these kind of things. And we realize that NFTs are a way in which you can create digital assets of a physical asset. That way, the physical asset, you're still able to gift, you're able to exchange whatever. Maybe there's a relation in in the NFTs themselves that it gets gifted to people who are purchasing a digital asset. So that's kind of what we're doing as a bit of a proof of concept exploration that indigenous people with their sacred items are able to show these to the world. And you can do amazing, it doesn't need to be the NFTs that we do where there's a drum and the generative kind of backgrounds. You can do simple pieces of, maybe it's a totem pole that you do a really good 3D scan of. We've done some things with antlers to like antler rattles to show an indigenous nation that your traditional craft is translatable into a, a, a potential 
3D asset. And then maybe in the future, when there's more like museum NFT possibilities and, and these other things that are coming up, these can be included for educational purposes, for sharing culture, where you don't need to now give away your cultural thing to the Smithsonian. The Smithsonian, for example, has stolen so many indigenous artifacts across the world, across Canada, across many different indigenous nations. And much of this has been, there's been a cry for years from these groups to be repatriated their items. If we can start to do these interesting possibilities with 3D scans that both the nation would have ownership of, that the Smithsonian can actually have some kind of monetary exchange for, we can start to to give back goods, make 3D copies of whatever it might be to be able to repatriate it. So our NFT project is a proof of concept to step into some of these directions. And it seems that when we step into this, there's always the adjacent possible. We realize stepping, oh, there's some other things that we can start to to do with the DAP that we want to create, with this other direction that we want to go, with AI language revitalization for indigenous languages. When you start to step into the direction of what you're already doing with Web3, it's kind of like there's just a million other lenses where you can go as you make it into iterative layers of the possibilities of Web3. So for us, I think that's kind of the beauty of it, but also the difficulty because we're trying to prove this as a technology for indigenous people amongst a marketplace of DGENs and the apes wanting to make a quick flip, which is fine in itself. It's a market, there's market dynamics, but to try to prove a model for the use of NFT smart contract technology for indigenous people amongst the noise of people trying to pump the floor, the dumps and the general noise in the market. It's interesting to be able to find the right eyes on the project because it's not just about selling out a collection and you've made it. It's how do you create a sustainable thing that is integrated with your business so you can facilitate what you've been trying to do this whole time. Yeah, again, like a million ideas. But I think you brought up an interesting point because obviously the way that sort of the existing crypto and NFT marketplaces and communities approach a lot of different projects is is not the intention with this project. How have the communities that you have been targeting or you do believe could benefit from this project responded to it in general? So when we first started, one of the first things that we did, not first things, but in our first few months of stepping into this, we did a rattle making workshop for a First Nation. I forget, I forget this specific First Nation. We were at a hotel in North Van and had a kind of room booked. And the first half was David came in and did a traditional rattle making workshop. He prepared elk antlers. They brought beads and different things. And the indigenous people would, and a lot of elders would create a rattle. And that really grounds them into their tradition and what this can be for without us starting with Web3, listen to this new technology. And it wasn't until probably like halfway through the day that we then started talking about Web3 and what can be possible. It's always hard to, without a grounded idea, like make some rattles first for people to understand what can happen. But for the most part, with those kind of possibilities, we do see a at least an understanding of this being a good potential. I haven't seen a lot of, if not any, negative feedback on what we're doing, but it's in a lot of ways, that sounds cool. Like prove it, like like show us, that yeah. sounds great. And then if this model works, then maybe that's something that we can think about. What we find is like when we talk to elders, for example, they don't 
it, it's not about them understanding the technology of Web3. But when we talk about kind of how it works, the decentralization aspects, the ownership, all these things, they get it in a lot of ways with wealth sharing principles. We've had some elders who explain what they see in it to be similar to like the potlatch system of being able to give out wealth because that returns it to the community. So there's a lot of interest and a lot of education that we're having to do around what is this in general, because I think a lot of people that don't know what this stuff is, when we're able to talk with them and they get it and their eyes light up of, wow, we we can do that with this. Like for example, we were talking to some people from the Dene Nation about our project and just what you can do with Web3. And there was someone who's part of a plant medicine lineages. There's probably a better word for that. I don't know if they're a shaman. don't know the proper word in this case. So very into plant medicine lineages on land in Northwest Territories. And one thing that we were talking about is like the ability to provide training and education about the land the plant medicines, the seasons, harvesting, all these things can be done with smart contracts, NFTs in an education setting. And when she understood these different ways that it could be used, that highlights up, I see what can happen. So we're seeing a lot of good potentials, but it's definitely interesting in terms of stepping into having to educate and especially in a place like Canada, where there is such a tech gap for indigenous communities, remote communities that haven't had much, if not any Wi-Fi. So, so one thing that we're wanting to do as well is to be able to work on providing internet connectivity for remote indigenous communities and do web three education so that instead of just joining into the internet, they're able to kind of leapfrog internet technologies, much like how India was able to jump from the analog to the mobile generation without necessarily going into desktops very heavily. So so that's a direction that we're wanting to go. That will be interesting for me is when we start to connect with more of the remote, how easily, how readily, and how interested in picking up these ideas they may be. Because there's definitely a, a difference between people who are more acquainted with the city and that kind of thing, and people who may be deeper in the bush, there may be more traditional ways of living. I'm interested to see how that integrates with Web3 and what their thoughts will be in general with all this. I mean, this is such progressive forward thinking. And I think it's it's interesting you brought up the example of India because some of the, the businesses that are executing and building out Web3 solutions, I'm hearing are having to go overseas. There are economies that are much more open and already implementing a lot of Web3, especially when we talk about supply chain management. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, North America has not been the early adopters in this level of technology. Is, is So just out of curiosity, and if you can't answer this question, that's totally fine. Is it the For Our Future Indigenous Economic Organization that's funding all of this? So- so the way that we stepped into doing 400 drums is, so we were doing like feasibility or like what we were doing for RFPs. We were doing yeah. a lot of contracts around business reports, feasibility plans, contracts with businesses, these kind of things for research. But when COVID happened, there was a large funding gap for from grants, from the way that the government was able to pay out their normal contracts and a large, a large amount of that was due to, I think it was up to like 60 to 70% absentee rate in the government through COVID, through especially like kind of peak times, which means that payouts of contracts were 
way past due. This is another reason that smart contracts would be so useful because it's like Absolutely. X thing happens, pay happens. Yeah. So I think we were going a few months with like six figures accounts receivable. So like we're owed a lot of money and got to a point where like, what are we going to do? Like, we know this money's coming, but we can't, we don't know when because of COVID. So Tamara had like went home one day and was thinking about them selling drums previously because you can for fun like fundraising for x thing you can that can be okay to do if you get the the okay from your elder kind of thing and she came to work one day and said okay we need to make 400 drums that would give us enough money to make this funding gap so that we can continue on contracts past this and i had relatively recently come on the team i i had heard them tell me about like you're not supposed to sell drums unless it's for specific purposes. And though this was for a purpose of fundraising so we could continue the business, I was like, I've been reading about NFTs, guys. Maybe let's talk about this for a second and see how we can do things differently because I was bringing it up because I had heard, hey, not supposed to sell these. And it turned out to be kind of a really good trial of NFTs. So with her idea of this will do the funding gap. And then me realizing like, if we do NFTs with these, instead of just selling 10 drums, those 10 drums can become X amount of drums, depending on how you do the assets. And you will get royalty payouts anytime that there's a secondary sale, blah, blah, blah. Eyes kind of lit up and we started kind of immediately going that direction. So it started off both as the research direction that we had done previously, but also because of funding challenges. So it's like we had to jump in the hot water just to figure out what we were going to do. And now we're able to kind of, what's nice about it is it forced us to come up with the 400 drums idea, but now we have kind of a constellation of a few businesses of 400 drums with the tech and some of the arts and culture ancestral link david's company that does specifically like drum workshops like he has a professional drum making workshop that's been recorded really nice he does workshops for youth other kinds of connections to culture and cultural mentorship and then there's for our future indigenous economic side which is more on like that business relation and kind of contractual fulfillment that will kind of facilitate into what the other companies are doing. So it's allowed us to kind of create this three-pronged approach to indigenous economics in general that I think really aligns with, if you look on like the For Our Future website, it'll show that indigenous economic lens. I think with these three organizations set up, it allows us to think in really interesting ways of how we can apply that lens to the work that we're doing. Okay, I want to circle back to this point of inception because it is the epitome of creativity and problem solving. And and I love when you put constraints on a situation and you go, okay, what can we do within these parameters? I think very creative concepts happen there. But before I get to that, could you <laughs> just in terms of like how long did it take to get this project off the ground? What was the kind of runway? What was like your roadmap to put it into web three terms? I mean, it sounds like you were you you had a very short amount of time to create some never have tried before results <laughs> and and there was a lot riding on this so i I'm, i think people would want to know like how long did this take how how the heck did you do this so i think i want to say last year late october so like around this time last year i don't remember like a specific day but around this time tamara kind of came up with the idea and David's always making drums. So I think like she came up with the idea and like the next day there were suddenly drums at the office. I'm like, oh, oh, we, we are, we are doing it. Oh, okay. <laughs> like I didn't understand how that 
it, like how sudden that pivot would be going to be. This has been my first like professional job. Like I previously worked in the cannabis industry and then I tried to do this, the volunteer app. So for me, like just understanding the pivoting of a business, it, it was kind of interesting. So he kind of came up, made a drum. And for a year before that, maybe a bit longer, may, around a year, Tamara and David had been, they've been playing with liquid acrylic art in different ways and with canvases, with all these different things. And, and, and like you've seen liquid acrylic pours, I'm sure. Yeah. They can yeah. be really unbelievably beautiful. So they were playing with paint textures and all these different things of just how to do a good job. Because Tamara's an artist, David's an artist. That's just, Tamara does these beautiful painting. Like she'll do an acrylic pour and then she'll do from like what she can see in there, she'll find like that there's a tree and she then paints the tree out, but it's like integrated in the abstract drawing. And she's, she's synesthesia. So she has the ability to uh, see like light harmonics yeah. in different ways. So they took what they were doing synesthesia, for so long. Synesthesia, just, sorry, just to interrupt you. Synesthesia is the connection of one of your five senses to an, like an unrelated fifth sense. <laughs> like, so you like, you look at something and then you see colors or you hear music and you smell something and like in, in art, it can be a really interesting exercise because you can, you can see something that others might not be able to see based on how one of your other senses is kind of firing. Sorry. And for most people, it is like generally like one, one sense, like chromosthesia, you hear sound, you see color. Then I think for Tamara, it is like, everything at once like she'll see something it resonates in her body there's a taste and a sound characteristic to it but what's interesting too is it not it, it's not like hallucinations like they've done more studies on this and it's yeah it's not just random things happening that are unrelated no it's it's our perception of reality so yeah. i think it's just fascinating and for her the translation into art and spirituality through it is really fascinating. We have some really great conversations, but because of her ability to understand the mixture of light, I think she did one of her, her school theses on color theory, but it was like a rediscovery of color theory in an even more complex way. Like anyways, she's a color theorist. So with all this work that they've been doing, they took the, the work on the canvas and they started doing pours on the drums. And this hasn't been done before. Like you can see different pours on different things on YouTube, but I don't think there's ever been somebody trying to do these acrylic pours on a drum and the drum takes the moisture out of it in a lot of a different way than, than the canvas does. So within a day or two of Tamara kind of coming up with this idea that David had started making drums, I had started kind of creating some presentations on like how the different ways that we can do this with amounts of NFTs and stuff like that. And then I think by the end of the week, maybe, maybe two weeks later, David had had done his first painted one that was kind of his trial and then painted after that and made the first the first series of 10 and and then so that was like october to mid-november let's say and with these drums you have to wait for the the paint to dry and when as the paint dries more layers of color comes out of the paint because of the way that the light densities work with acrylic paint so two weeks later a month later it's going to look different from the very first day so we waited for them to dry then we had to do different photography sessions to be able to create perfect kind of images that we could then take out to turn into our assets that we would put on the NFTs. But with that, we did sound recording as well. So we have some audio soundtracks made and every one of the drums are recorded for their own soundtrack. We've made like these rotation videos. So we probably got a lot of that primary work done. So like late October to sometime in December, because I remember going away for Christmas. And then I think 
like we we like launched our website in the beginning of January, but didn't start minting until I think June or July. So it took a bit. We we kind of had the drums and stuff ready, but to make that the digital, the physical, the creation, the website, and all those things took a. That, that's what it takes to kind of get everything else together. So a few months towards getting it to mint. And even the mint point is still a little bit of showing the concept. We have a lot more that will be coming. The the development that we want to get to with the DAP and these kind of things are the next layers. So it's like the phase one, here's our plan has taken this long. And then as we get going with these new contracts and stuff that we're working on with with the different businesses, then we'll be able to get into these next layers of, of the development. Wow. Thank you for taking us on that journey. That's just so inspiring. Is this like, I mean, now this is just me. I always do this. Like, I'm like, well, selfishly, I want to know, is this a concept that you think you could offer to other communities that would potentially want to harness this technology for similar purposes? So this, that's essentially like our, our hope with this project is like, even if we're ultimately not successful, like our, our only hope is that somebody takes this as inspiration of how you can utilize this kind of concept for the benefit of communities, people, nations, whatever it might be, apartment complexes. Who knows? We are with this and doing Web3 education for Indigenous people as, as we continue. We're wanting to both bring people like other Indigenous artists onto our project for later launches, but also just teach this model and and kind of just not you have to do this but it's like here's our version please figure out your own thing like that's what we would like every nation to to have every indigenous nation whatever because it's not just nfts and can we twitter market it well enough it's like if you're an indigenous nation if you're whatever community um the other communities that are in partnership with you, the way that the government may have to support monetarily, whatever it might be, if you can figure out a Web3 business case where that and other communities can hold your art themselves and just start to mutually do these exchanges of creativity, transfer and and hold between communities, that's what we want to see. Our plan is not to be 400 drums. We saved indigenous people. <laughs> that is not, it's not even reasonable to think that. We want to prove a use of this technology that to us seems completely obvious so that Indigenous people have a chance to not be technologically colonized and that maybe the market can mature a little bit in a direction towards how these technologies can actually be useful for humanity. I find, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I find it hard to believe that you could have predicted you'd be sitting here having this conversation even three years ago, let alone when you were probably first pondering, like, what should I do for my job? (laughs) This is not a job that you could apply for on indeed.com. <laughs> no. And so did you go to school for something or did you, you know, kind of come up in an apprenticeship or start working? Like, how did you, how, how did like, I guess my real question is, is what do you think your job is? Or like, what is your work? But yeah. like, also how the heck did you get here? Yeah. I love that question because I remember, I remember when I was working in the cannabis industry, towards the end of working in the cannabis industry, maybe maybe a year before I left, I was there for four years, I think. I remember having a thought where I'm like, in the future, like I was listening to a lot of Mitch Horwitz and like Neville Goddard. Mitch Horwitz wrote the, a book about Neville Goddard and compiled some of his best work. So I was just thinking about that and 
manifestation and all this stuff. And I was just thinking like, I want to be able to have a job that utilizes all of my passions and my skills and what I actually want to be doing. And I, I like talking and communicating and ideas. So I'm like, I don't know how you combine that into a job where I'm not just sitting at an office answering emails, blah, blah, blah. I feel like my soul would die if I was in a role like that. So I was kind of doing that. I'm like, I'm going to get something. It'll allow me to sometimes do remote work, sometimes won't, whatever. So that was kind of in the cannabis industry. But previous to that, when I was going through university, so I did university for like, I ended up with sustainable community development, development and sustainability, geography and dialogue as my kind of minors and, and a certificate. And before getting onto that track, I was like, I went into university for like world literature, had no idea what I wanted to do. Just knew, I guess I should go to university. I had a back injury that took me out. Like I couldn't go to school or work for about a year and a half. Took me two months to learn how to walk again. Um, and even then it was still recovery towards a year and a half later to be able to go to work and like weight bear. And when I was sitting on my back doing nothing, I remember thinking like, why am I doing world literature? Like I need, I like, I am, it, I did that spelunking into my soul. Like, why am I here? <laughs> I don't want to just yeah. do world literature. And like, there was no purpose. And I kind of found this purpose. And at the time it was like, I need to save the world. Let's go into environmental science. That's how I save the world. And even that had this layer of like, taking it upon me to be the hero. I will be the savior of the world. Just had this ego to it, but it started kind of the path of, I, I know that there's a purpose to me learning about the environment, learning about geography more, ended up going into the kind of sustainability direction. So I started getting into like sustainability and, and psychedelics and in these experiences, really getting interested just in indigenous culture, all these things and, and through university, never having a sense of, I want to do these specific jobs so that I can get the technical position of being able to be in geography. So I can look at the, the rainfall and the, the, the level of the river. Like I didn't, I wasn't there to be a technician. I had an interest in the classes that I was going to, and it felt like a thread was kind of pulling me. Just do classes from the interest that you feel in it, not for the result of, I, I want this specific degree. And towards the end, I'm like, what the, f what the hell job am I going to get? I just did university out of interest for seven and a half years without a clear direction. <laughs> What am I going to do? I was in the cannabis industry, left the cannabis industry, started doing construction, trying to find what this direction would be started doing that app, like I mentioned the here to help. And before meeting Tamara for funding was what I was hoping for, for the, the here to help thing. And my friend, Chris, indigenous guy connected me to Tamara. I had a dream the night before I talked to Tamara over zoom. And it was a weird kind of formless dream. I was in like the DMT realm. It felt like, and I saw this woman in cultural regalia. She was an indigenous woman, had this headband on. There was like feathers in her hair. She was holding two feathers. She had like a yeah, cultural regalia on and she was animated by the sh a shamanic spirit of power. That was an eagle. I could just feel that it was eagle, just like had the dream knowledge to it. So she's dancing and the dancing of her dance is weaving all of the, the cosmos with it. So it was like this embodied, like the dance of, of Shiva kind of thing. I was a little Shiva statue yeah, up there. So it was kind of like that idea. I'm like, oh, cool. That was an interesting dream, really powerful. Wow. Felt like DMT. And then the next day I had the Zoom with Tamara and David. And when I saw Tamara, I internally freaked out a little bit because she was the person who was in my dream. Like, right. it like not, oh, kind of looked like her. Like it, it was completely her. I'm yeah. like, that is really weird. 
I didn't tell her because um, I'm like, that's <laughs> kind of weird to just say I'm asking for whatever. Oh, but have we and all then, done that, haven't we? <laughs> yeah. And then about a week later, I have another call and it ends up being like a, a kind of job interview. When I previously was asking for funding, then it became a job interview. And at the end of that, I'm like, okay, Tamara, like I need to let you know, I, I had a dream about you before I met you. At the end of the job interview, she kind of just like looks directly into the camera after I had some kind of monologue. And instead of responding to the monologue, she's like, you're microdosing today, aren't you? And I'm like, yes, <laughs> I'm not sure if it's a good thing. And then I told her about the dream and she was like, that's kind of incredible. Pulls onto her Zoom background. She shows me a picture the, after the call. She sends me a picture called Medicine of Woman that she painted. Beautiful image. And it was exactly my dream. It was, it's a woman in the DMT realm in a trance animated by like consciousness in the weaving of all the, the layers of reality or something like that. And it, it was my dream, but Tamara was the woman instead of it just being a, a woman that she drew. And then I, I kind of just got the job. So to me, I don't know how I got this job. There was some kind of inner intention that pulled me through university, through the classes that I wanted to learn, through the passions that I have, through cryptocurrency, through psychedelics, and every single thing was pointed towards what I'm doing right now. Yeah. So that's my job. I don't know I, what yeah. work I do. I do. For anyone not I watching, I'm just like jaw dropped, like, oh my fucking God. Thank you for sharing that. That's fucking <laughs> awesome. And like, so if I'm hearing this correctly, you just kind of like followed what felt right and expansive and interesting. Yeah. And it was just kind of like there's something any hope pulling of me. like being professional or wealthy. <laughs> yeah. And then it just ended up with being able to be part of, to me, one of the most interesting ideas out there in, in web three, which already is this, like it's, it's innovations on innovate. It's, it's first, there's something about me that's I've always liked to be at the peripheral of things. When I play video games, I like to do glitches. I've always been a lucid dreamer. I like psychedelics. And now I'm in web three on the periphery of web three, finding out a new way to leverage this technology. Yeah. Something's pulling me and it puts me in some interesting places sometimes. <laughs> well, I can't actually wait to hear your answer on this one because I was going to ask about your process for creativity and, you know, listeners know I kind of explore this, the intersection or perhaps interweaving of creativity and spirituality. You just painted a pretty magical picture. Do you consider yourself an artist? We were talking about this a little bit before the call and what was kind of, to me, like, like, yes. And I agree with what you said that kind of like everything that we do is art. I've been thinking about this a lot in the past. And it seems like when we're born, the first medium of expression that we learn is, is our vocal cords. We learn how to ask for food first it's crying. And then eventually you can express yourself into these magical weaving complexities that make you question what consciousness and God is like, that is art. So any medium of human expression that allows you to get a feeling out or yourself out of the way to let the expression out. I think the expression and that thing coming out is art, is consciousness, is the blooming of life in a lot of ways. And I think just like a piece of art can be a beautiful or a piece of pa a painting could be a beautiful piece of art. I think the life of somebody, when you look back in a different dimension of time on what the life of a person is, and you could, could see somebody in their entirety of a person, that to me is a beautiful in that way. I feel that I am 
in a process that is trying to express something and my art is trying to come out through some of the work that I'm doing in some of its expression. I do do a little bit of art, but I do feel that I am being weaved in a way that I am part of an artistic process of some kind. And the more that I can get myself out of the way, I can feel it more. To me, it kind of feels like those moments of the intersection of where kind of Kronos meets Kairos, where meaning is is intersecting with linear time. Like to me, the finding that, the realization of that, and the allowing that expression to continue your meandering through your existence is is one of the highest expressions of art there that there could be not that i want to call myself some high artist for doing it i think i'm just trying to i'm just trying to continue to do what i feel like i i want to do so yeah i guess i guess i'm an artist in some capacity and it's interesting through this process realizing more about what art and kind of life is when you let it lead you yep your answer fucking ruled <laughs> And what I think it's going to give everyone so much food for thought, quite literally. And and it, it, it also plays on this, I think, very colonialist, especially like westernized concept of art, because what you're you know describing in 400 Drums isn't art per se so much as it is ritual or cultural preservation or even pres- like preservation of wisdom and and sort of ancient practices and we we got we get so caught up in the words and ultimately all we're ever trying to do is describe energy and so I think that's where you know, the way that you interpret just the simple vibrations coming out of my mouth, let alone like the symbolism of a, of a few letters strung together in a particular order is going to be different based on a variety of different factors. I know I certainly pedestalized artists and art for a very long time. And it was this idea that we're in a constant state of co-creation with the universe, with each other, with, with nature, with, everything. And, you know, this is coming from someone who this is probably my biggest challenge is allowing that and giving myself permission to, to pull on those threads because we've been, you know, so programmed to think that, well, if it doesn't make money, then it's not worthwhile and you're wasting your time and, you know, all of this horrible shit's going to happen. And, you know, that's why I'm so fascinated by business is because I think, again, it's one of these very like cumbersome loaded words, but what ultimately it connects people to is that thread that can provide them with like a livelihood and a freedom that they get to be in charge of. And so that's when, when we stop thinking about like, what job am I going to get or what career am I going to be in? But we use, you know, again, these sort of common terminologies to say, well, like what business am I in? And it's been interesting because I've really noticed this pattern more recently that business can like mean serious. <laughs> and so I've been sort of presenting people with like, well, what would you like to take more seriously? What would you like to make your business. And that could potentially connect you to a whole bunch of creative opportunities that you would not be able to plan on or to strategize or to put into a spreadsheet and create a budget around. And so I do think it like this process of, I mean, this is redundant, but this process of creation is inherently creative and it is kind of allowing these really unique opportunities to come to light through trusting what that feels like for you. Like, does this feel good and expansive and exciting and interesting? Or does this feel constricting and limiting and boring? (laughs) For me, boring is like a really good indicator. How have you sort of honored that creative process in your day-to-day? 
the last year or so, I definitely haven't done enough honoring of it. When I've been on the, the tract of a startup, I've, yeah. I've definitely been putting a little bit more effort in the, the hammer and nail side of like trying to get stuff done. And that's kind of hurt me in, in some ways. Working from a laptop, not going on enough walk. I used to be a very walky person, like especially when I lived like a few houses ago, every day I'd be like at least an hour in the forest. So why do you this- think like oh. that temptation is just so fucking present and like undeniable. Cause I think every single person can relate to that. That is listening to this. I can relate to, I'm in that phase right now as well, where it's like, I'm not going to move my body today. I'm not yeah. going to sleep enough. Like I'm not going <laughs> to eat the foods that I know that fuel this vessel properly. Like I'm just going to go balls to the wall. And, and, and I know exactly where this is going to end up as well. It's so like, yeah, I, I'm just curious. I'm sort of, inter- I'm not sort of, I'm totally interrupting you, but why with the experience, with the knowledge, and especially with that, it seems like you've, you, you took some time to really invest in just simply getting to know you. Like how, why is it so easy to always like go back? (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. There's something addictive about complacency. I think it's really easy to kind of get in this routine and feeling like, oh, I need to keep up this tract all the time for X result. But everything before when I'm in the walking mode and conversing, that's where the magic is happening. That's where the most amount of progress really seems to happen is when I'm like letting go of this need. I got to do this thing. I got to not eat all day. I got to forget to do everything and answer Twitter. Like when I'm not constricted on the feeling of needing to be productive productivity kind of just seems to weave itself. And, and for me, like if I'm, if I'm able to go out on a lot of walks with friends or alone or whatever, like my inspiration comes from being in the forest, like the patterns that I see in nature and that I'm able to kind of like weave into an understanding are what I'm trying to reflect in, in, in my experience of life in businesses that I'm working with, because understanding the cooperation and creativity and art in nature, being able to express even like a degree of that, I think would be kind of like a life well lived. So for me, it's like, even like in in previous podcasts, or if I'm taught, like the best conversations that I have are often inspired from understandings of natural systems that I see in interaction with how human psychology actually works or how the development of large swaths of society, like there, there's a lot of parallels between the energy flow of an ecosystem and how like a city or business gets developed. And I think just being able to take those cues and, and just let them run through you instead of sitting at my table, feeling like I'm forgetting something as well as not eating for most of the day allows that creativity to flow in whatever form I need it to come out. Maybe it's a conversation. Maybe I decide to do like an actual art piece for once again, a podcast or my podcast intro, maybe a new idea and I can finally get it out. But there's something for me about the connection of me and nature, and then also the connection of me and another, which allows for this something, it's kind of like new two neurons coming together. The thing that comes out of the two neurons coming together is it's, it comes from between them. It's not like this neuron did this thing and this, it's the, the synaptic cleft that allows like the dopamine or whatever to continue. So there's something about the inspiration between me and nature, between me and another that I think allows me to notice the currents of creativity or something and enough for me to be able to express them. Woo. That was awesome. Thank you. So do you have 
like a routine? Is that so like, I got distracted because I was having this conversation with friends and they were doing one of those, like, you know, pull cards and like ask questions kind of conversation generator. And someone said like, what is the thing you're most afraid of right now? And my answer was discipline. And my friends were like, that's weird. I was thinking like heights or sharks. (laughs) And I was like, there's this level and, and I discipline isn't the right word, but again, it's like this energetic structure that I know when I plug into it, like it actually creates the space for yes. me to feel like I can do whatever the fuck I want, which is that's where like I switch on. It's but- exactly what you said of when 400 drums was at the kind of that place of constriction. And then we created 400 drums. The same is true with music. The same is true with, with business. Like you have to have an idea. You have to have the harmonic structure to be able to riff within, to be able yeah. to have. So like structure and loss of assumed freedom allows for greater expression of freedom as an individual. Yes. Beautifully, beautifully put. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, I I mean, I always said it's in the discipline that I discover my freedom, but like I am hitting that like every day at four 30, I'm like, I could sleep a couple more hours. (laughs) Like it's, it's, yeah, it's this constant tension, which I also we need, we need that tension in order to maintain structure. And, you know, maybe that is the, the whole purpose of this experience is to play with that contraction expansion and the duality of the human experience with like your day to day. I mean, even recognizing right now you're, you're, you know, flirting on one end of, or you're, you're on one end of the spectrum, knowing that there's a whole range that you could be participating in that could potentially create different I dare say preferred results for you or experiences. Like how do you kind of create a ritual, a practice, a pattern in your day to day to yield whatever it is that you're looking for? Yeah, I'm definitely currently in a similar phase as you where I'm riding up against the feeling of structure and, and I know that there's some changes that I need to make shifts with in my life to get back to a routine and structure where I will see more of those freedoms kind of flow. Like you say, for me right now, like I'm, I've, I finally found a new apartment. Like my apartment is literally like, there's my, there's my whole apartment. It's really tiny. I can't even lay down to stretch and do yoga and that kind of thing. So I think in the current conditions that I've been in for the last little bit, it's been hard to, to have the structure that I know will make me thrive. What I do here is like in the mornings, as much as I'm able to, I, it's really easy for me to get like stressed and anxious of like the shoulds in the morning should be doing, should be doing, why aren't I working? Why aren't I doing this? So being able to like wake up and move like a little bit, like on a walk or sometimes even just starting with like cleaning my house, like making the bed, doing my dishes, just gets me out of this stress loop that I almost find myself in daily that can often get to the point of waking up with such anxiety that I throw up every morning for like two months straight. So I need structure to get out of habitual tendencies of of taking on too much stress and often actually like doing chores and cleaning sets my mind at ease enough to be able to kind of like, okay, I can ease into the day. And a big thing for me is, is A, having conversations that feel like new ideas are kind of being generated as hopefully daily thing for kind of that inspiration. So, so those are kind of huge for me. And and that's kind of like why I've had my podcast and stuff in the past is just having this outlet of being able to connect and have a conversation like this. There's something about just 
having some kind of outlet that allows whatever your particular flow state is. For me, it's often in conversation Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of ideas that I have, I don't realize until it's like in the conversation and in the flow of the thing that I'm saying, I'm like realizing it as I'm saying it. I'm like, oh, this is very cool. So a big part for me is forcing myself out of imposed kind of isolation. And like you said, at 4 p.m., why don't I just kind of like start relaxing? I, I it, It's kind of like even what you said with Noah, like just do that, do that one extra thing. How can I seek out that little bit of connection to allow that flow state to come to come? For me, it's mostly in conversation and inspiration on walks. I know for other people, it's like in doing an art piece or in like playing guitar or something like that. I think that is probably the most important thing for somebody to be able to feel on a daily basis, whatever structure they have. I think being able to drop into some kind of flow is you touching that thing in you uh, that needs to come out in whatever capacity, if it's, if it's sports and whatever. But I think feeling that and feeling that pure freedom that exists in those moments is is the thing that allows really my creativity and and stuff to flourish. So as much as I can, I try to get my routine to support that, though it's definitely been a bit more challenging in the last, like like since COVID, but with moving and such like that coming up, I feel like I'm actually going to be able to exercise again and and move. (laughs) Firstly, thank you for sharing all of that. I think that's incredibly valuable, also totally relatable. And and I think to your point as well, that like everybody's going to have different activities. I have a whole list of activities because it's so, I can get obsessive about things and I never forget to eat though. <laughs> Wish that That's was my one ADHD. Of my it's not good. I'm just like, <laughs> one more thing. Oh, one, one more thing. One more yeah, thing. I'm usually I'll like yeah. one more bite, one more bite. <laughs> But, you know, I have a list of activities kind of depending on my energetic state. Because another thing I have, I have very strong tendencies towards our anxiety and depression. And Mm -hmm. so I know my cues in terms of if I start doing certain activities, like, oh, that's usually like the the beginning of this particular spiral. And so like conversation for me is huge connecting with people. Do you know your human design? A manifesting generator. Oh, okay, cool. That's a big like projector thing as well. But you know, all of those things are very nuanced. Like I I have like a whole actual list that is like the first page in in my journal. And when I say my journal, I mean like the 18 different things that I used to write down and like capture my (laughs) crazy thoughts. But to remind me like, oh, you're doing this, like this, this, because I... I have yet to get to a place where like I have full creative freedom and no one expects me to do anything at any time. Like I do believe time is a construct, yeah. but it, it is also a very useful intersection of like our interdimensions to be like, <laughs> let's record a podcast together. And like, I, I totally honor and respect and admire people who have found the ability to just simply honor their flow at any moment on any day. But I find like, I often need to rally. Yeah. And I need to go from a particular frequency that I'm experiencing. I don't need to, I desire a, a frequency that I know is going to engage a, a level of reciprocity that feels yeah. like rewarding. And so, yeah, I, I've, I, I know all sorts of different things that I can do. And if I get like one of the things I'm playing with right now as well is like when I get to the end of that list, I, that is full permission to just like yeah. cancel everything, get back into bed and try again tomorrow. Cause I have, like, I think it's a trust exercise as you start to play with how can I be what I feel is the best version of myself? Like not what I was told is the best version or the shoulds that I should be doing all of the time. Yes. And when I can find that 
like desire to actually do the thing, it happens effortlessly and it's amazing. Like it takes me a fraction of the time and it's, it's awesome. But when I feel like I have to, or I should, it's usually kind of a subpar result. And I've been playing with this for long enough now that I know like it'll get done. It always gets done. And if I can just tune into that anxiety and that frequency that's telling me like I'm, I'm creating a meaning from it, then I can, then that gives me the opportunity to go, okay, like how true is that? How much do I want to buy into this? Like who's leading the show here? Like ego brain or like, you know, heart soul. But like, so this idea that like, even though I kind of feel like I'm butting up against a wall, I've also been doing this for long enough to know, like, I'm going to crash through it. And so like when you're living in a shitty place or, you know, you're at the end of a particular partnership or relationship, whether it's work or personal or like we are existing within certain parameters and and constraints. And sure, most of them are completely our doing and our, our building. But like, I also haven't figured out how to deconstruct elements of our physical experience instantly. (laughs) Like usually we can get there on like, you know, a mental, emotional, spiritual level, and then the physical world needs to catch up with it. And so when I can give myself like a break and go, okay, like we're just here right now, we are going to eat too much, or we're going to sleep too much, or we're not going to do the thing that's been the top of our to-do list for the last three weeks. And like, it's cool, man. Just, just be cool. It's like within the next almost 24 hours, I'm like, Hey, I I think we're going to make that shift now. Yes. (laughs) So yeah, that felt worth riffing Um, on. Like with that idea, there's, I've read it on like so many of my podcasts and I feel like on a few that I've been on, but it really goes with this idea. And especially because so much of of those stresses come from like the expectations self-imposed or externally imposed. I have, I have to leave in in just a minute, but this might be a good kind of passage even to, to end on if you don't mind me saying it. And Um, also I've just, before you go, I want, I'm going to put, I'd love to share everybody's art that was discussed. Obviously the 400 drums project at like, tell everybody, you don't have to tell everybody where they can find you because we have limited time, but like send me everything. We'll put it in all the show notes. We'll make sure to direct everybody to all of the different amazing things that you're working on. And Rian, please finish your thought. Heck yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll say the, the passage and then I'll, I'll do a few of my pluggings and yes, I'll send you the info in, in text for show notes and stuff. So in, uh, 1969, there was a guy, or he didn't only live in 1969, but this comes <laughs> from that 1969, John Lilly, who created the float tanks. If mm. any of you have tried a float tank, beautiful, uh, meditative hyper chamber, almost really good experience. I used to work in a float center. Go if you haven't read about them. If you haven't, they're amazing. In the summer of 1969, he wrote a series of meta programs, which are kind of like poetic ways to get you to kind of look at your own patterns and tendencies. So he wrote this one about expectations and and it just really goes well with what we were just saying in the conversation. So thought I'd end with it. it. It's kind of long. It's like prose poetry, but I think you'll like it and you'll, you'll get it. I expect thee, I expect thee to do, I expect thee to be what? Thou expectest me, thou expectest me to do, thou expectest me to be. What? I expect them, I expect them to do, I expect them to be. What? I expect thou expectest what? I expect they expect what? I expect thou expectest they expect what? When thou expectest, I expect thee to expect what they expect. I ask, why expect? 
I answer because I expect to. I am here to live up to my expectations of me. Am I? But what are my expectations of me? They expect me to blank. Do they? Do they really care? Thou expectest me to blank. Dost thou? Dost thou really expect or care? Care for expectations? Expecting to persist in past patterns of mine, thine, or theirs? Expecting to search? Strive for new patterns, new expectations? Expecting to strive? Strive for escape from old expectations? Expecting to evade old expectations of me, of thee, of them? I expect that my expectations are the expectations of others, not mine. I imagine what thine expectations are and assume they are mine. I expect what I write of expectations. I expect that when I write of expect, expecting is read, it will start expectations of me in thee and them. I search, I write, expecting, further expecting. Why search? Why write? Why expect? Why thee? Why them? Why me? Ooh. Thank you so much. That was incredible. Full full body chills. Because <laughs> I think so much of us take on everything in our outside environment, seeing what we should be. And we pull these into ourselves and create anxieties of comparison of why we are not that. And I think the more that we can reflect on that kind of idea and like go from constriction to expansion away from expectations into creation, I think we will all be the better for it. Well, and it, it, it describes the loop. My expectations are their expectations, which are my expectations of their expectations for my expectations, which are their, you know, and that yeah. that's anxiety. Like it, and we live at the peak loop. of all that. We're not like yeah. here where none of that matters. So like as much as we can return to, Oh, they don't give a shit yeah. what I'm doing. They're, um, th- they're too worried about your expectations of their ex. Like, exactly. <laughs> so Yeah. Oh, so yeah, well, thank you. Thank you so much. I know you've got to run. We've taken up so much of your time, Rian. But if there's anything else you'd like to share or say, I just appreciate you so much. I appreciate the work that you're doing in this world. I think you're an absolute light in the darkness. And I just cannot wait to see everything that you continue to create. Appreciate you so much. Thanks for having me on the show. Oh, you can find pleasure. me on like Instagram and Twitter at reincarnation, but like my name, R-I-A-N, carnation, and then two N's. I have a podcast called Reincarnation. Come find me. I have the 400 Drums Project. I'll give her a bunch of links and hopefully I'll see you on the the internet waves or something out there. Thank you so much. Yeah, we'll surf the light. Fantastic. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) Take it easy. Really good chatting. Mm -hmm.